Well, we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and I think that's the right thing to do, and we stand for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, you can be seated. Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's our text as we're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Peter. As you know, our theme for 2019 is living the legacy. We're talking about this being our 50th anniversary and how we want to be sure and honor our past, but we also want to engage the presence and we want to be uh, the present and we want to equip for the future. Our focal passage comes out of the book of Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16. Somebody jump up for me and say that out loud. We got a microphone. Andy, you got it? Let's get a microphone for you. Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already attained, either were already made perfect, but I follow after if that which I have, if that which I have, after that which I have already attained, that which I have. I press on. I press on toward the mark. Oh, no. You got it. Just relax. Start over for me. Not that I have already attained, either were already made perfect, but I follow after if that which I have already follow after if that which I have already attained. Did anybody else memorize it in the New King James? We all have different translations. We kind of did anybody else do that one? No, I didn't do that one in the New King James, so I'm not sure the flow that you have it. Okay, so let uh, let Alan prompt you there. Okay, so, um, that, I may that I may apprehend, which I have already been apprehended by by of Christ of Jesus Christ. Not that I, brethren, not that I have already attained. But I, but I follow after. This is an amazing, difficult thing. This is why we do it. This is why we practice it in here. Because when we're, we're amongst our fellow believers, we can kind of stumble on those things and work through those things. You know, but then we go out there and we try to tell other people. And it's like, oh, and we get that. So it's a great experience for us to be able to do that. You want to come back to that one next yeah, week? Yeah, we come back to it. All right. Anybody else have it? All right. Bill Bohannon, take that microphone. What, what translation? Uh, New American. Okay. Would you take that? Thank you. Okay. Not that I've already attained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on so that I may toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Great job. Great, great job. 
So that's our theme verse for this year. We're living that legacy. This past Sunday, we began a new series of messages, and that message series is to help us to live that legacy, to help us be able to understand how to live out this passage that uh, we're focusing on for the year. And Sunday, we're going to be talking about what's my mission. I'm living on mission, so what's my mission will be in Luke chapter 9. So I encourage you to go ahead and read that chapter and be prepared as we come together. The sermon series that really kicked us off for this year and kicked off this theme was Living the Good Life. And so tonight, that's the title of the sermon, the title of our lesson tonight out of 1 Peter chapter 3. It's Living the Good Life. And really what this message is, it's an addendum to a lot of the things that we already covered in that series, but it's where we are in this study. And I don't think we want to skip over any of those things. So in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, Peter says, one who desires life to love and see good days. I believe you'd agree with me that most people in the world today, they desire a good life. They desire to see good days as a part of living their life here on the earth. Unfortunately, Satan has tapped into that desire that we all have to be able to live the good life. And he's got us concentrating on a lot of the wrong things that he says, that's what will give you the good life. And of course, we talk about things like money and houses and cars and vacations and fine clothes and fine dining and making sure I've got the best seats I possibly could get at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo this year or at the Texans game or whether it's at health and fitness. And oftentimes when we don't find the fulfillment from those things, nothing wrong with any of those things unless we're looking to that to fulfill us. And when we don't find that fulfillment, then a lot of times people will turn to the next level of those things. And that'll be the drugs and the alcohol and the hedonistic uh, type lifestyles. You know, we, uh, we've got uh, missionary work in Cuba. And so for many years, we always flew in and out of Havana. Now we fly in and out of Holguin, but used to we flew in and out of Havana and we'd always have to spend the night there. And we always stayed at the hotel where Ernest Hemingway would stay back in the 40s and the 50s. And, and they actually have a room set up for him, set up as kind of a museum. And it was the room that he, he stayed in. And so when you kind of think about Ernest Hemingway and you kind of think about these great literary novels and things that he wrote, but yet you go into that room and you begin to realize he really did not have much regard for morality and he did not have much regard for um, what we would say biblical standards. Now, he was living in the world's view, the good life. Uh, you're talking about hunting and fishing expeditions. He was doing those all over uh, the world. He, he participated in the parties and the get-togethers with the rich and the famous. He, he was a globetrotter. You, you can just name all of the countries and all the places uh, that he would go to. We know that he covered revolutions and he covered wars. He actually participated in some of them as he was actually create or, or covering them. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1952. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954. But in spite of living the good life in 1961, according to one of his friends, he took a double-barreled shotgun that he had used so often that it probably was his best friend, and he used that device to take his own life. Now, we know because of what Peter writes to us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, and this, is be a, this will be a passage that we'll, get to get, we'll uh, go over and we'll cover here in a few weeks. But in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, Be on the alert, be, be sober, pay attention, because your adversary, the devil, he, pros, he, he uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so what we know is that Christians are not exempt from falling into the trap and falling into the trickery and falling into the mindset of what the good life is, according to what Satan and the world would say 
in comparison to what God in his word would have to say. The Bible's full of examples of this. I mean, I think about Solomon. You know, when Solomon uh, was, was, was crowned the king of Israel, God said, well, what do you want? And he said, well, I, I want wisdom. And it was amazing the way that God blessed him with those things. He had, he had money in the form of chariots and, and, and military forces and horses. And he had palaces and he had everything that you can imagine. He had the pick of the, of the world when it came to beautiful women who he would marry, who he'd have in his concubines. As, as a matter of fact, Solomon was so amazing early on in his life that we find this, uh, this uh, account in Second Chronicles chapter 9 where it says, When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house which he built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his ministers and their attire, his cupbearers and their attire, his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. This is the queen of another country. She was breathless. But yet by the end of Solomon's life, by the end of the time that he'd come to the end where he's now getting ready to die, because Solomon allowed him to be caught up into Satan's deception of what the good life was. Listen to what he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun the houses I built, the stairway to the sanctuary, the, the way that I dressed, all these things that I did. I hated it for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. In other words, that's what the world's view of the good life. That's what striving after those things. It leaves a person empty. Solomon found that great accomplishments or education was not fulfilling according to Ecclesiastes chapter one. He found that pleasure was not fulfilling according to Ecclesiastes chapter two. He found that material possessions was not fulfilling according to, again, Ecclesiastes chapter one. And I'm sharing all of this with you tonight as we kind of set the stage uh, as we're going to be walking through this chapter that there's a lot of views in the world today about what the good life looks like, both on the Christian realm and both on in the non-Christian realm. There's a lot of differing views when it comes to that. And, And basically, if you took all of these views and you boiled them down, they produce a mindset about the good life or about life in general that really can be boiled down into us approaching life in three different ways. Number one, we could approach life as we're just simply here to endure it. That's one of the ways. It's kind of like I get up every day and life is so hectic and and my responsibilities are so much. It's like I get up every day and I'm just walking back into that hurricane of life and I'm going through the same routine and I'm just simply trying my best to endure it so I can get to the weekend so that I can take a break and maybe have some kind of relaxation in my life. That's the way a lot of people approach life. Other people, they, they approach life as I've got to escape life. Every time I get up, it's so overwhelming. It's so much. I, I've got to escape from it. I've got to turn to some kind of pleasure. I've got to turn to the drugs. I've got to turn to uh, the alcohol. I've got to turn to something which ultimately, because it does not meet that need that a person has in their life, it ultimately leads into something like what Ernest Hemingway did, that he ultimately took his life because that, that desire for the good days of life never was fulfilled. But the other way that we can approach it, and I believe this is the way as Christians that we're called to approach life is we're called to enjoy life. We're called to enjoy life. All believers should enjoy life. I believe all believers fall into this third 
category. And I say that because of what Jesus wrote in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He said, the thief comes to steal and to, and to kill and to destroy. The, the, the thief just wants you to endure life. The thief just wants you to, to, to maybe escape from the realities of life every chance that you can possibly get because he doesn't want you to have an influence on other people around you. He wants your mindset to be so, so distorted when it comes to this idea of what the good life really is that you won't impact your children, you won't impact your grandchildren, you won't impact your coworkers, you won't have a different attitude, you won't have a different approach to anything that you do because you're just simply trying to endure it or you're just trying to escape from it as much as you can. The thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, but that's not the case for me. I've come that you may have life, present tense. I've come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. In other words, believers should love the life God has granted them. Listen to it. Believers should love the life God has granted them and enjoy its goodness each and every day. The fact that you get to get up in the morning, the fact that you have breath in your air, the fact that, that you get to start a fresh day, that should just invigorate you because this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, not enduring it, not trying to escape from it. One of the verses that backs this presupposition that I have is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. It says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yet still, in light of all of these things, there's so many Christians today that are not living the good life. What we've seen so far in our study in 1 Peter, uh, we've, we, we begin to realize that Peter's recognized there might be a reason why Christians are not operating in the fullness or the, the, the enormity of this good life that God has for them. And it may possibly be because according to chapter 2 and verse 11, they've come to the realization that they're aliens and strangers here on this earth. I just kind of look different than the world. I talk different than the world. I, I, I would just as soon, you know, just, just endure what I have to do now because I'm going to heaven. I, I'm ready to escape this because I know where my eternal resting place is. And so uh, because of that, and then quite possibly if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, because you are aliens and strangers, you're going to deal with various types of trials or various types of persecutions that are coming into your life. And so Peter's starting to, uh, he's been addressing this for us. But in spite of all of those things that he's talked to us about so far in this, he's still saying it's the believer. According to verse 10, it's the believer that desires life to love and see good days, not to endure life, not to escape. It is the believer that is to desire life, to love and see good days. So tonight I want us to look at the attitudes that we must possess if we want to grasp hold of living the good life of the way Peter's going to talk to us about here in 1 Peter chapter 3. So let's begin reading in verse 8, and let's take a look at these attitudes. He begins, to, he begins by saying, to sum up. If, if, that phrase that you have there, it, it literally means finally, or therefore. Anytime we see the word therefore in the Bible, what do we ask? What's it there for? So he's, he's summing up everything that he said in this section of the letter. And to understand what he's summing up, we have to go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 11. So take your Bibles and turn over there very quickly with me. 
He says, he says to sum up everything that I've been saying to you since chapter two and verse 11. And here's what I've been saying to you, beloved fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those that have a relationship with Jesus, I urge you. Yeah, you're an alien and a stranger. You don't fit in, but I'm, I'm encouraging you abstain from the fleshly lust and just enduring life is giving into the fleshly lust. Just trying to escape life and just deal with it. That's giving into the fleshly lust. So there's all different things that fall into there, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I've shared with you as I read through passages like this, this is where I stop and I go, okay, Peter, I hear what you're telling me, but how in the world do I do that? How do I not fall victim as everybody else does of just trying to endure life or trying to escape life? How do I do that? And Peter, as we've been looking at says, well, you have to make a choice. It's up to you. Your husband can't do it for you. Your kids can't do it for you. Your spouse, or your, your, your parents can't do it for you. You have to make a choice. And that choice is in this world in which you live, are you going to choose to live better or are you going to choose to live bitter? And by the way, to show you which way that you're choosing or the choice that you're making, take a look at how you respond to authority in your life. Look to how you respond in the area of authority from the government. Look to how you respond to the area of authority from where you work. Look to how you respond to this idea of authority in your marriage. That'll be a good indicator as to whether or not you're truly living better instead of bitter. And by the way, Peter says, if you're not sure what this looks like, or you're not sure what you should be doing, or if you're not sure who you should model yourself after, he gives us a perfect example. Look down at verse 21 of chapter two. He said, you've been called for this purpose. You've been called to live better and not bitter. You've been called to endure the persecution. You've been called not to just endure life or escape life. You've been called to live life. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were spiritually healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but not anymore. You're choosing to be doers of the word and not just hearers. You're choosing, you're making a choice to live better and not bitter. You were formerly straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Now, Peter says, now, finally, to sum it up, to come to the conclusion of what I'm trying to get across to you in this section of the letter, everything that I've been writing to you to this point about living better and not bitter all of this revolves around your attitude. Everything that I'm sharing with you, it revolves around the choice that you make, whether to embrace it or not. And we all know the old saying that says, attitude is everything. What's going to be your attitude to what you're learning? What's going to be your attitude about the things that we're talking about when it comes to living better and not bitter? And to sum up how to live better and not bitter, he gives us these two things that we should evaluate 
in our life. If we don't want to just endure life, we want to live the good life. He says, let me, let me, let me ask you to evaluate yourself in some areas and it will help you understand whether you're better or bitter. And the first area that he talks about is what's your attitude toward believers? What's your attitude toward believers? Look at verse eight again. To sum up everything I've been teaching you, all of you, every Christian, every believer, everyone that's a follower of Jesus Christ, you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. In other words, you have to make a choice to participate in a unity or a spirit of unity. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 133 and verse, 11, uh, verse 1. He says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Barton Stone was an early 19th century preacher, and this is what he had to say about unity. He said, let the unity of Christians be our polar star. To this, let our eyes be continually turned, and to this, let our united efforts be directed, that the world may believe and be saved. Now, think about that. Think about what he just said. He said, as believers have the attitude of unity in everything that you do so that people will come into the kingdom of God. Well, pastor, I thought people came into the kingdom of God by confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in their heart God raised them. That's how they came into the kingdom of God. Yes, that's how they come into salvation. But what draws them into salvation or what doesn't draw them into salvation is when they see a bunch of people called Christians that come together in a church setting where the Holy Spirit is to reside and they can't even get along with each other. They see these Christians that say, you know, we found the way, the truth, and the life and how that he's everything, but I hate my wife so much I'm going to divorce her and get rid of her because I can't stand her anymore. What he's trying to get across to us and what Peter is trying to say to us is we cannot expect the world. We cannot expect the unsaved to be open to listening to our gospel message. If we're disunified in our marriages and we're disunified in our body of believers, they can find the same stuff at work. They can find the same stuff in the bars. They can find the same stuff where all the secular people are. It should look different in this place called the gathering, the called out, the ecclesia, the body of Christ when they come together. So we must be sure that our attitude is in check. This is what Peter's talking about. We have to make sure our attitude is in check when it comes to other believers. And he's talked about, hey, we, we, we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're uniting ourselves in marriage with other believers. So our attitude toward a believer in our marriage, an attitude toward a believer in our churches, this should be something that's different than how an unbeliever is. Because if we can't live in unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're not going to live better. We're going to live bitter. And when we live bitter, we don't act, talk, react, do anything different than the world that is around us. And this impacts our influence. So subsequently, it impacts others' ability to be open to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that tonight? We want to cop out and say, well, we're not God. God's going to save anybody. that He absolutely is. 
but he's chosen to work through believers to be the one that share that gospel with other people. And if we have the same attitude of disunity in our body, man, this is a message that needs to be preached in every church across America. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about having a church that equips us and opens our doors where others can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that they don't spend eternity separated from God in hell. So it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what you want. It only matters what God wants. And I need to have unity in that so that the world would be open to the message of Jesus Christ that we're trying to share with them. And so in verse 8, Peter talks about this living the good life. And he talks about checking your attitude when it comes to other believers. And there's two questions that we ask ourselves coming out of verse 8. Am I harmonious and am I humble? That's what he wants us to ask ourselves in verse eight. When it comes to my believers, when it comes to other believers of the faith, am I acting harmoniously and am I acting humble toward them? The Greek word here for harmonious is homophron. Because you know the word homo means same and the word from there means mind or understanding. Peter in this passage of scripture says, your attitude when it comes to other believers is we all should be of the same mind. There should be a single-mindedness about things when it comes to believers. Jesus extended this, this command. He extended this understanding to the original 12 disciples. Listen to what he says in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see that sometimes when we go, well, that, that's what Jesus told the original 12 disciples, that he wanted them to be in, in unity. He wanted them to be in single-mindedness. He wanted them to, to love each other because that would be a distinction to the world, that there's something different about this thing called Christianity. But obviously, he wasn't talking to us. So that's why we pick up the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's not up on the screen, but listen to it as I read it. This is what Jesus says. This is right before he's going to the cross. This is right before his crucifixion in John chapter 17. He says, God, I do not ask on, on behalf of these 12 alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Has anyone ever read Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, where it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Has anybody ever read Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Has anybody ever read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life? Anybody? Is that what you understood? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So then you came into this relationship with Jesus Christ through the writing of these words, right? Are we on the same page? I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. 
Now, in our Western culture, sometimes we're kind of afraid of that unity of the body because we think in some way, shape, form, or fashion, that means I have to give up my individuality. And that is absolutely not the case. I mean, I'll say it this way. Living harmoniously does not mean that you sacrifice individuality. Living harmoniously does not mean that you sacrifice individuality. Just as in a marriage, is the husband and the wife, they're so different, but yet they understand their role and they understand their function. They're able to operate in unity. They have different roles, but it's, order to be, but, but it's put in place in order to be successful. I, I was talking to a gentleman today and I was trying to say, I was telling him, I said, think about something when we, when we make a spiritual statement, put it into the context of how you can understand it. That's what Jesus did all during his earthly ministry. He was talking to a bunch of uh, uh, sheep herders. He told them about what it looked like spiritually in that connotation. When he was talking to a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, farmers, he told them a story in the language of farming so they could understand. So take the truth that we have and try to put it into context. I mean, we live in Texas, so everybody loves football, right? There are many different roles on the football field. You have the quarterback, and you have the left tackle, and you have the, you have the split out, and you have the, 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 the running back, and you have the tailback, and you have the tight end, and you have all these things on offense. And on defense, you have all of these things. And they all specifically carry out different roles and different responsibilities when that ball is snapped. And if they don't carry out their role and responsibility individually, the team will not reach their purpose, and their purpose is to win the game. They are individually who they are, and they're equipped, and they're skilled to do it, but they're working in unison to accomplish something that's bigger than they are. Think about the body. Maybe, maybe you're in the medical field. So what does this look like? Think about the body. The ear is not the nose, and the nose is not the eye, and the eye is not the, 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 the esophagus, and the esophagus isn't the heart, and the heart isn't the, the pancreas, and all these different pieces, but they are all individual, and they function differently. The femur does not act like the liver. But in harmony, in unison, that body accomplishes what its goal is because it's operating in oneness. And if we don't allow the body to operate in oneness because there's some kind of disease or some kind of struggle, other parts of the body begin to become diseased and struggle because that one has decided not to carry out their individual role. Believers are to live in harmony together. Maintaining a common commitment to the truth that produces an inward unity of heart with one another, but in the confines of their individuality. Living harmoniously does not mean that you sacrifice individuality, but, but in whatever role that you do play on the team, in whatever role that you do play in the body, you play that role humbly. Because your role is no more important than anybody else's role. Your role is not any greater than anybody else's role. I mean, think about our theme verse from a few years ago, Philippians chapter 2. We're in Philippians 3. We backed it up a few years ago, Philippians chapter 2, right? Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, do what? Regard one another as more important than yourself. You have a role, but it's not any more important than the other role. The reason is very simple. It's because on a team or in the body, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a variety of gifts, but there's the same spirit. There's a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. 
but to each one individually is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the what? Common good. So that we can come together and accomplish what God has called us here to be unified in the calling to reach out to an unsaved world so that they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when you and I think about our attitude when it comes to other believers, when we kind of evaluate this, we have to ask ask ourselves the question, am I acting harmoniously? In other words, how well do I play along with authority? He's just said, I'm summing up what I've said. Submit yourself to authority. Submit yourself to authority in government. Submit yourself to authority in the workplace. Submit yourself to authority in the marriage. And if you don't submit yourself to authority in the church because you think what you need and what you want and your gifts and your abilities are so much better than everybody else, you're going to cause disunity in the body. And as a result, that's going to take time and effort away from the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. And that's to bring people into the kingdom of God. So what is your attitude? What is gut check time, attitude check time? What is your approach when it comes to harmonious and unified or harmonious and humble living? Because the opposite of that is disunified or puffed up. Okay, so the first attitude that he has here is this idea of living harmonious. The second one is you got to ask yourself, yourself the question, am I sympathetic and kind hearted? Am I sympathetic and kind-hearted? Another stepping stone, if you will, to living the good life as a Christian. It begins with this attitude of not just knowing what's going on with my brothers and sisters in the fellowship, but it's understanding what's going on with them. Here's what I mean by that. The word sympathetic, it speaks to the idea of a head knowledge. We all need a head knowledge of what's going on in each other's life. There's absolutely, absolutely, we need that. I I, I hear what you're telling me. I hear what you're saying. I understand it. I've got a grasp of it. I've listened to you. You've explained it to me. This is what you're going through. And I am sympathetic to that. But in the Greek text, the word used for kind, excuse me, kind hearted. It's a weird word. But, But if you go back and you study this word in the classical Greek, it will always refer to the visceral part of an animal. The word that's used for kind-hearted, it always referred to the heart, the lung. In a literal term, in the New Testament, that word literally talked about the intestines of an individual. In Acts chapter 1, when, there, when Acts opens up and it talks about how, that, um, how Judas went and he hung himself and then it broke. And then when he fell to the ground, his body opened up. And this word talking about his intestines physically is what came out of him. But figuratively, in the New Testament, this word is always referring to the seat of our emotions. Our heart, our soul, our gut. If we want unity in the body, not only do we have to be at the point where we understand what other people are going through in their life. But we have to interact with them enough That what they're going through, it literally gets us on the inside. There is a emotional, there is a response that comes out of this when we truly understand what it is. Kind hearted speaks of embracing at your core. 
experiencing the visceral impact of another's joy and burden. It's far beyond, well, tell me what's going on in your life. Uh, well, this is such and such. Okay, well, I'm going to pray for you. And we never once offer a word of prayer. We, we know what's going on. We're sympathetic to it, but it hasn't changed our actions. It hasn't changed our approach. It hasn't changed how we relate to that situation that we find. That's why Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're really good on the weeping part. You don't know about that. Just go to your ABF classes and look at all your prayer requests each week. Ingrown toenail, blocked, you know, bowel. Man, we sympathize with that. I feel your pain. I'm praying for you. Praise the Lord for my, 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 my job promotion. I'm fixing to make about $50,000 more than you. Well, you little holy roller, you just bragging in church. He said right here, rejoice with people with rejoice. You get a $50,000 raise, I'm going to rejoice with you because that's at least five grand coming in tithe. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to rejoice with you. It's not, I'm not competing with you. I'm unified with you. You're part of my body. I may be the wrist and you may be the big toe, but man, a $50,000 raise for a big toe, that's a fine no, nail polish on that toe right there. Amen. I'm excited about those things. I'm, I'm happy. For, and it catches me on the inside, whether it's bad or whether it's good. It affects my emotions because we are part of the family of God together. That's why our ABF classes are so important, guys. That's why it's far beyond us just making sure that we're, we're taking care of our few people that are in there. And we are scanning the horizons every time this door is open, looking for people that look like us to get, us, get them plugged into an ABF class. Because it's in the ABF class that you connect on more than just a sympathetic place. A more than just a, it's now I'm doing life with you. Now I'm going to lunch with you. Now I'm interacting with you. Now I'm fellowshipping with you over the word of God. And when you have joys, I'm going to rejoice with you. When you have struggles, I'm going to struggle with you. And it is going to get me to the very nth of my being because you are part of my body. You are part of my team. You are, you are part of this big picture of what we're supposed to be doing together so that we bring other, people's into, other people into the kingdom of God. And when that happens, nobody falls to the crack. But man, when we walk in that class and it's all, well, I don't like this song or I don't like that teacher or I don't like that verse. And it's all, G -g 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 -g. the world says, man, what in the world do I want to go into that class for? Why do I want to be a part of a congregation like that for? There's no need to be a part of that. I can get that at work. I'll just stay home and I'll watch the football game on television because nobody's going to mess with me when I do that. What's our attitude when it comes to other believers? What, what's our approach? Are we harmonious? Are we humble? Are we sympathetic? Are we kind-hearted? Do what they go through grips us? And then finally, we have to ask ourselves, am I brotherly? This is a derivative of the Greek word phileo, brotherly love. Do I have brotherly love, relational love with other people? Think about it in our home. Am, is my wife, is my husband, are, are they my friend? Do I love them or are they my enemy? My children, these other believers in the body, do I love them? Do, do I care for them or are they my enemy? 
The, these others believers, these others that are brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have the same heavenly father. Do I approach them in a relational way? I love them because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ, which takes us full circle all the, back, all the way back to where we started just a few moments ago to John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you that you what? Love one another even as I have commanded. And then the high priestly prayer, I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So living the good life, it requires me to check my attitude when it comes to believers. But it doesn't stop there. It also requires me to check my attitude when it comes to unbelievers. It also causes me to check my attitude when it comes to unbelievers. Look at verse 9. It directs our attention to how believers should respond to unbelievers who mistreat them. Now, that, that's a central theme in this passage, right? We've got these Christians that are being persecuted by non-believers because of what they believe. And verse 9 is addressing this. Verse 8 is believer to believer. Verse 9 is believer to non-believer. He says in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This verse opens up with an imperative present participle. It opens with a direct command, but it's a negative command. The command is evil, or excuse me, the command is returning. You returning evil for evil, insult for insult. It's a negative command, and he says, stop. He doesn't say, maybe, maybe don't do it. He's saying, you're doing it right now. This is what Peter's dealing with right here. He's got these Christians that are being persecuted by non-believers, and Peter steps in and says, hey, you want to reach them? Stop. I'm giving you a command. Stop. Stop. Stop returning evil for evil, and stop returning insult for insult. The word in the, for evil in the Greek language, kakos, it denotes the inherited quality of badness, not just actions. It says, stop returning evil for evil. Stop returning insult for insult. N not just because of the action that somebody, but even if it is at the very core of who they are, stop doing that. In other words, when you're mistreated by an unbeliever, a believer is never to retaliate, whether it was just an action that they took or whether that person really is wicked. Now, think about this. If I'm not willing to be nice to Sam, my brother in Christ, there's no way in the world I'm going to be nice to a non-believer. When Sam, my brother, says something to offend me and all I can do is return evil for evil and insult for insult to someone I'm in a relationship with, how quick am I going to do that to somebody that's dying and going to hell? If I can't be empathetic, not just mentally, but in the core, when Sam comes to me and says, hey, I'm struggling with this in my life, or I've got this going in my life, or, or praise the Lord, this great thing happened. Man, I got an order for 50,000 t-shirts last week, man. 
and it doesn't impact me at all, why do I care if somebody's dying and going to hell? My family doesn't impact me, so nobody else is going to impact me. Stop. Stop. Stop returning evil for evil and insult for insult. Even if the person that's doing to you, they are bad to the bone. They are messed up. You know why they're messed up? Because they don't have Jesus in their heart. They're not saved. And if you started going toe-to-toe, insult-to-insult, evil-for-evil, guess what they're going to say? Oh, that's Christianity? Yeah, I need that. I got that from my mama growing up that made me the way that I am right now. That's the way my ex treated me that went to church every Sunday. That didn't help. Why do I need any of those things? Instead, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to follow the words of Christ. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 with me real quick. Let's see what Jesus says about this, about returning insult for insult and evil for evil. Matthew chapter 5, first chapter of of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 38. Remember, We just read, he said, hey, guys, I'm going to give you this new commandment. This is how people are going to know me. It's by the love that you have. Before he said that, he gives his declaration of what his his kingdom's going to be about. And he says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, verse 39, do not resist an evil person. Stop returning evil for evil. Stop returning insult for insult. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. Stop returning evil for evil. Stop returning insult for insult. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asked you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. How in the world do we do that? That person that I know is not saved and they are just under my skin every day at work. How in the world do I not go down that path? Well, he gives us the answer. Instead of giving them insult for insult and, 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 and evil for evil, give them a blessing. Now, doesn't that just warm your soul right there? <laughs> give them a blessing. Pastor, hang on just a minute. That's not, yeah, it says it right there. Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Pastor, how in the world do I offer a blessing to a non-believer that is causing me all the suffering and the persecution and the pain. I'll give you four ways. You ready? I'll give you four ways. Here's four ways that you can offer a blessing. Number one, bless the unbeliever by loving them. Bless that unbeliever. Bless that one that's giving you so much pain by loving them. So many people in our world today have no idea what unconditional love is. Someone that's just making a choice to love them just because. I remember when I was unlovable, 
I remember when I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I remember when the wages of sin was death. I remember I had no hope whatsoever of eternal life. I was unlovable. But God still chose to go to the cross and die on that cross for my sins so that I could have eternal life. And I'm going to show that person that same kind of love that Jesus showed me. And I'm going to love them unconditionally. Second way that you can bless a person is bless the unbeliever by praying for their salvation. Yeah, I pray for them, all right, but it ain't for their salvation, I'll tell you, right? We pray. We, we pray that they get fired. We, get prayed that they, we pray they get moved to a different department. We pray that we get a different job. Why don't we just pray for their salvation? What do you think might change if they, if they got the Holy Ghost living inside of them, you know? Pray for their salvation. Number three, bless the unbeliever by expressing gratitude for them. Whoa, hold on right there. Gratitude for what? I don't know. Maybe they gave birth to your kids. We have a lot of blended families. We have a lot of things going on in the world in that area. And we got these Christians that come to the understanding. Here were some things I should have done different. Here's some things I should have, you know, made different in my life. And, and, and I'm going to express gratitude for you. In the past, I've exchanged, I've exchanged insult for insult, and I've, I've exchanged for evil for evil, and I've told you all the horrible things. Let me, let me, let me concentrate on the, on the things I am grateful for. Number four, bless that unbeliever by forgiving them when they persecute you. Not when they ask for it, but when they do it. Bless that unbeliever by forgiving them when they persecute you. Now listen to me. Peter knew what it was like to struggle with this. Peter, Peter knew early on in his Christian life, early on in his walk with God, he knew what it was like to struggle with this because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 18, he comes to Jesus one day and he goes, hey Jesus, how many times do I got to forgive somebody? Seven? Because remember the law said three. So I'm going I'm to up the ante. I'm going to say seven? And then I can give insult for insult and evil for evil, right? Jesus says, uh, nope. How many times? 70 times 70. And by the way, let me give you an illustration here, Peter. Just make sure you understand what I'm talking about. There was this, this, this man that owned this great big business, this great big corporation. And there was this guy that owed him a lot of money, more money than he could ever pay. And he came to the owner one day and said, hey, I owe you all this money. And I know you're about to throw me in jail, but will you forgive me my debt? And the business owner said, yeah, I will. Your debts are forgiven. Go live the good life. And on the way outside of the business, he runs across this dude that owes him five bucks. He says, hey, I want my five bucks. And the guy says, I don't have five bucks. He said, throw him in jail. Remember that story? What was Jesus trying to get out? Peter has just asked, how many times do I forgive somebody? And Jesus' answer is, just keep in mind what you've been forgiven of. When you want to know how much you're supposed to forgive somebody else, remember you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never perish. And that if you confess with your mouth and you did that and you deserved eternal separation and damnation, but I've given you eternal life, I've given you something you could never pay back. Don't you dare hold out for somebody to pay you five bucks. 
It's kind of amazing. Now Peter, he's grown in his faith. He's matured. Now he's seeing how this next, this next generation of believers are struggling with the persecution. And he comes right back here. And basically, what does he do? He just gives us back what Jesus had already given him. And look at verse 9. He says, oh, and by the way, you were created for this purpose. You were created to do this kind of thing. Since believers have received the divine, unmerited, eternal blessing of complete forgiveness of an unpayable debt to a holy God that resulted in eternal life. Bless the unbeliever by loving them. Bless the unbeliever by praying for their salvation. Bless the unbeliever by expressing gratitude for them. And bless the unbeliever by forgiving them when they persecute you. So that, look, verse 9, you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And if Jesus's example isn't enough that I've given you at the beginning of this, and if this instruction isn't enough that I've given you now that I've told you everything, let me give you one more incentive to make sure that you embrace what I'm talking to you about, about living better and not bitter. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears, they attend to their prayer. You look in the Old Testament. This passage is all tied up into things that have been quoted from the Old Testament. When you talk about the eyes of the Lord and the ear of the Lord, it's talking about those that he finds favor with. God's watching out for those that he finds favor. He's listening. It's kind of like when we're, when we're downstairs and we've got this newborn baby, right? And we hear the little sound and boy, it gets our attention. And we go to look and see, is there anything that that one needs? His eyes, his ear, they're attentive to the one that puts into practice what it is that I'm talking to you about here. But then he says, but the face of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, you always talk about the face of the Lord. and It's talking about the judgment of the Lord. The eye of the Lord looking out for you, the ear of the Lord listening to you and what your needs are and how to help you where they are. They are focused toward the one that will put into practice what I'm talking about here about living better and not bitter. But the judgment of God, the face of God, it's turned toward those who do what? Who choose to just be hearers of the word, not doers. Because if you're not going to do what the word says, you can fake it for a while, but eventually in your church, And eventually in your home and eventually in your job and eventually someplace, you're going to turn on another believer. You're going to do it. Because you're just sitting being hearers of the word and not putting into practice the things. And then there's going to be disunity that comes from that. And then those unbelievers that we ought to be reaching, they're not going to be interested in what we have to offer. That's why MacArthur says Christians whether today or in Peter's time, have always had to contend with a hostile world. But they can live humbly, respond to persecution in a Christ-like manner, and adhere to God's standard of authority because they have the promise that even in the midst of trying circumstance, God is watching over them, God is protecting them, and God is ready to extend his blessings over them. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we live better and not better. You decide. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to open your word tonight. I pray that uh, we will not just hear it, but we'll put it into practice. Thank you for those that are joining us uh, on Facebook today. We pray that they'll be blessed as well. Father, we pray as we come back together this this Sunday, as we learn more about living on mission, that these things will dovetail together and that we truly will be fully devoted followers of Jesus with a heart to reach the unchurched of our community in the world. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.